Greater than count no man happy until the end is known. Greater than greater than dash solon. These past few months have been busy in terms of burials and funerals in Igbo land. This is usually because most communities don't allow such during the Yuletide period, coupled with the fact that the year has been one of the most unsettling in recent times. From the slump in the economy and economic activities occasioned by not properly thought-out government policies, to the COVID-19 and the corresponding lockdown, that finally nailed the coffin of what little was left of the air the anemic economy was breathing, to the end SARS protests, and the aftermath. I attended two funerals in October and November respectively, and a few post-funeral condolences paid, in between all of that, in eastern Nigeria during the same period. You might be wondering why attending funerals is a thing for me, but I figure myself as a kind of anthropologist, and in the words of Solon, Athenian statesman, lawmaker and poet, believe in not counting a man lucky until his end is known. Funerals are events at which a lot of human nature is gleaned for absolutely no cost at all. Also, as an Igbo, it is our belief that onye kwalu madu, kwalu onwiya, and I can't emphasize this enough, because by playing a role in the funeral of another, one inevitably is watering the ground for his slash her own, is how we say, and see it. I will in this post intimate you with what I came across this time around attending Igbo funerals. Usually when a person of note dies in Igbo land, his slash her passing is announced by the firing of cannon gunshots, sometimes on the particular day the person died, by members of the deceased's family, usually on the day of the burial, and funeral, then after that, on the day someone who missed all of the above, comes in to pay condolences, for these, just about anybody who is led to want to show pain from the loss of the dead, can approach the cannoneers, to release the cannon shots on their behalf. These gunshots are anything but the conventional type used by the military, rather they are devices that are set into the ground, and set off to make loud earth-shaking bangs, the frequency and number of events depending on how much was paid to the gunner by the mourner. Of interest to me has been the effects of the thuds from these cannons on infrastructure in Igbo land. During my last visit, I paid some particular attention to the walls of buildings, of fences and the likes, only to find to my chagrin, that fault lines have developed on most of them, some have even divided into two, along its length. Since I didn't want to come to my conclusion, I decided to ask around, to find out what people thought was responsible for the breach I've noticed in walls in my neck of the woods. Some of the cracks, truly were due to the massive roots of trees, which is a constant sinusure in that part of Nigeria, which extend fangs strong enough to threaten the stability of walls. Hardly will you come across a homestead in the rural areas of Igbo land that didn't have one tree or more planted within the compound. Very popular amongst those trees include the breadfruit tree, daring anyone to attempt to shelter under it. But there are walls that aren't close to any tree yet suffer from fault lines and cracks, and when I sought to find out what was responsible for those, I found that a few people agreed that the cannons must play a role to some extent in favor of that outcome. Furthermore, it is in eastern Nigeria that it appears that greenery, flora, foliage does little in abating the effect of erosion. Again, one is led to think that the firing of these cannons, with their regularity, mimic earthquakes, man-made, that can affect the stability of our soil, making it unstable to carry weight, creating fault lines there as well, from which landslides develop, and with rains, lead to the erosion that is causing three-story buildings to simply up and collapse for no just cause. I, it is probably just a hypothesis, but what do I know? Now that that is off my mind, let me move on to another matter that always come up during Igbo funerals. During funerals, one of the groups of people that must not be toyed with, are those linked to a woman. If a married woman dies, her kin, simply referred to as those who own her, make an appearance. Though, earlier before the funeral, a delegation from where she's married into, 
visits her people to inform them of her demise, as well as to explain the circumstances surrounding her death, many times these meetings can be very acrimonious. Whether the meeting was acrimonious or peaceful, on the day of the funeral, the delegation of the owners would storm the gathering with rage, cutting down trees and causing minimal mayhem, as they expressed shock over the demise of their sister, daughter etc. They would need, upon sighting, to be appeased with a fowl, before they are settled under a canopy, and amongst other refreshments, provided with a ram, before they in turn will pay their condolences to the family of the deceased. Even when a man dies, his mother's kin will also be present for such an entitlement. I did for my father's Naochi when they arrived to pay their condolences, and when my elder sister died, I was part of the delegation that traveled cross-country to go retrieve our entitlements, as I've outlined in earlier installments on this subject. One other thing I think I must have skipped in the past, in writing about Igbo funerals is the rope. It isn't unusual to see a rope been presented as part of the offerings during condolences. The rope signifies a cow, and is presented because during elaborate Igbo funerals, a lot of animals are slaughtered, and the grieving family and kin, would have made provisions for what they need, that providing one again by mourners could amount to waste. It is therefore why the rope is presented, while the monetary equivalent of a cow is presented alongside, which is what the family may be much in need of rather than the physical cow. Usually, those mandated to bring any kind of animal include in-laws. The husband to a first daughter must bring a ram, and can decide to up his game to a cow if he feels so led, while the husbands to the other daughters, if they be more than one, can settle for presenting goats to their in-laws, or again do better, if they so wish, however they must not go below the required. Evi Banu is one norm I've not talked about, and hadn't fully understood until the funeral I attended last month. It is said that it is necessary, to prevent the soul of the deceased from wandering about after the burial and funeral, and that if not done the dead would literally start picking off members of the family one by one. We didn't do it after my father died, and coincidentally my elder sister died about six months after we buried my father, but she also had cancer at the stage where her death seemed inevitable, hence there was, and still, for me, no thoughts, that her death could have been because na anya wa lo lu banu, we didn't fulfill the eva banu ritual. Basically, eva banu involves the slaughter of a ram, to make a meal of which only the ram is the main thing to be consumed. This meal is to be eaten only by males whose fathers are late, as any male who eats it while his father is alive, risks losing the latter to the cold hands of death. Interestingly, I met a kinsman very advanced in age, who put me through the dos, and don'ts of the culture that same night, while guzzling down the preparation with a bottle of warm beer, told me that his son ate of the meal, and while he was chided for doing so, told those who bothered to listen that his father was as good as dead. Nikkei, was also not fond of his son either, as he without any remorse told me his son had long died. I know you are tired, but bear with me a little while longer. It did cross my mind to split this but getting this in one piece wouldn't be bad either. One thing that came up while kinsmen deliberated on our presentation to the bereaved, was another burial and funeral for a kinsman scheduled for early end of this month, so chosen to avoid encroaching into the Yuletide period. In this particular case two brothers who had died, the younger, who had been buried without the funeral ceremony done yet, before the older, very much recently, needed to be buried and have their funerals done. Both of them have families, but only the elder had built a house in the village which accommodates the younger brother and his family, as well as the wife of their father who had been long widowed without children. Because the wife of the younger brother, had insulted, and cast aspersions on her stepmother-in-law, mentioning her childlessness while at it, the kinsman, reacting to the ruckus decided that the wife of the younger be asked to leave the property to the land already allocated to her husband, on which he had been buried, which is yet to be developed. It was decided that after the funerals for both brothers had been done, 
the landed property, owned by the father to the brothers, will be shared between the man's childless wife, and the other part to his sons. Should the woman die in future without selling her portion, the family of the elder son, who'd been taking care of her before his passing, will inherit her portion. It seemed fair to all that were present because it answered the question of welfare for a childless woman whose husband had died intestate, and took her interest into consideration. Finally, while I was there, the case of a young man, a kinsman who was said to have been terrorizing the town, and also offended the gods, and had died was also brought to my notice. This man was said to be very notorious, and his cases were constantly presented before the village god, for which he'd flimsily brush off, and continue to act with impunity. Even the long arm of the law appeared too short to grab him, as he seemed to know his way about with the usually corrupt police force. I was told that when he died in a car crash recently, the people heaved a sigh of relief claiming that it was the gods that finally did him in, noting how it was that his wife survived the incident, though still recuperating at the hospital. The priest had decreed that according to the gods, he wasn't to be buried in his homestead, and no tears were to be shed on his behalf, and that was how the man was buried without funeral rites, days before I arrived. Culture and tradition, it seems, regardless of the Christianity of my people still has a very strong hold and footing among my people. Interestingly, one thing I noticed, in the funerals I attended, is that the law passed by the Anambra State House of Assembly, passed right before the COVID-19 pandemic hit our shores early this year, regulating burials and funerals in the state, appear to be like pouring water onto a rock. None of the provisions seem to be upheld, and the people have been going about their activities of burials and funerals as if nothing like those laws existed in the first place. I've always posited that you cannot legislate the way of a people into law, as most of the things practiced today, took years before they became norm, traditions and cultures. The worst of it all, was that the input of the people was hardly sought from what I gathered, and that proceedings arose out of emotion, rather than practicability, even though some of the ills the laws were meant to correct appear germane if considered superficially. Kovic.